Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 410, The F Word. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rep transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Yuval, Brady, and David for signing up already. They appeared as if from nowhere. A great force of horses and men, armed to the teeth, charging towards the city of York. Where the hell did this army come from? And who was that in the back? Was that William the Bastard? He was supposed to be in Normandy. What was even happening here? Well, William had apparently learned a thing or two from Harold Godwinson. Because it was this exact strategy that Harold had used to great success at Stamford Bridge. And then to, well, lesser success at Hastings. The idea was to push hard to get ahead of any messenger and then take your enemy completely by surprise. And just like Harold at Stamford Bridge, the speed and stealth of William's approach meant that he was able to get his army within striking distance without any warning. The sudden appearance of such a large force would have shaken even a seasoned army. And York was not being held by a seasoned army. I mean, sure, there probably were some experienced soldiers behind those city walls. But most of the people inside would have been average people, like you and me. They weren't fighting against William because it was their job. They were fighting because they wanted to protect their families. So this kind of thing was all new to most of them. And their reaction to this sudden development was completely normal. They panicked. In the homes and buildings of York, family members, friends, and neighbors were grabbing whatever they could and rushing out the door. The streets would have been filled with the shouts and cries of men, women, and children as they stampeded to the gates on the opposite side of the city, desperate to escape. The townsfolk who had been tasked with holding the defenses of the city and guarding the walls would have had a clear view of what was coming towards them. And they would have known, better than most, how dire their situation was. The Normans were outside the gates. But also, somewhere inside the gates, somewhere behind them, inside that castle on top of the hill, were Sheriff William Mallet and his knights. So the people of York had Normans outside the walls, as well as inside the walls. And what do you do in that situation? Do you lift the siege and put all your forces into holding off the bastard? Because if you do, then what do you do when Mallet and his men sally forth out of their castle and attack you from the rear? But can you really hold the walls against the bastard if you're leaving a chunk of your fighters behind, guarding that stupid Mott and Bailey? This is why it was so important to take the castle, and why the English had been making desperate attacks against it. Because what had begun as a siege by the people of York had been turned on its head, and now it was a pincer movement by the Normans. It was a nightmare come to life, and many of the townsfolk decided to take their chances in the open countryside, and so large numbers of the public fled as fast as they could, probably hoping that somehow they'd manage to outrun the cavalry that was being unleashed upon the Shire. 
But not everyone fled. Some remained behind and prepared to make a stand against the advancing army, while also leaving some forces at York Castle to keep William Mallet and his men under siege for as long as they could. They might have done this because they had hope against hope, but I think it's more likely that they knew this was a suicide mission, and they were simply trying to buy their loved ones time to escape. Across the field, William was likely a little panicked as well. Those peasants in Durham had killed his hand-picked earl, and then the people in York had killed his hand-picked governor. But that was just the tip of the iceberg here. This whole conquest was starting to look like the Titanic. And it was what was under the surface that had William rushing across the channel and thundering on horseback halfway up the island. Because these f***ing northerners had picked their own king. And not just anyone. The scion of the House of Wessex. The inheritor of King Edward the Confessor. The real inheritor. Edgar was a million times more legitimate under this system of rulership than William was. I mean, all William really had was the lie that he had a super secret promise from King Edward. And it was the exact same scam that he pulled on Maine, and then, to a lesser extent, on Harold. So I doubt many people were actually fooled here. Which meant that this proclamation that Edgar was king was bad for William. Real bad. And if Edgar was crowned, then it would get even worse. Now, in England, a coronation was basically a bit of bureaucracy with some spiritual decoration. It was a formality. And the declaration itself was what made someone king. But I doubt William cared all that much about what the English thought. He cared about the continent. And on the continent, a coronation was a spiritual event that held real religious power. It was an acknowledgement from heaven itself that said that this guy deserves to rule. So if Edgar wasn't consecrated, then the proclamation of the North really didn't matter all that much. He was still just some guy. But if he was consecrated, then you've got two kings, both of whom were declared by God to have the right to rule. And this view of kingship was why it was so important to William, right from the start of this whole debacle, to insert the blatant lie that King Harold was crowned by Archbishop Stigand. Because that was the key to the claim that Harold's consecration didn't count, due to the beef that Stigand had with the Pope. And thus, God didn't select two kings. He only selected one, and it was William. So on the continent, consecrations mattered a lot. And while that lie had worked the first time, it probably wouldn't work a second time, especially since Archbishop Eldred of York, who was in the city, by the way, was not beefing with the Pope whatsoever and was absolutely authorized to consecrate a king. He was so authorized, in fact, that he'd already done it before. Twice. Eldred was the actual Archbishop who had crowned Harold. And he was also the same guy who had crowned William. So if he crowned Edgar, it isn't like William could say, well, that didn't really count because this guy is something, something ungodly. Now, since the invasion, Archbishop Eldred had thrown his lot in with the Normans. After all, he was the guy who crowned William. But there was nothing stopping him from changing his mind. 
He'd been in church leadership for over 40 years by this point, and he'd lived through and seen around 60 to 70 years of political turmoil and controversies. So it really isn't out of the question that the guy who crowned Harold and then crowned the guy who killed Harold might later go and crown another guy so that guy could go kill Harold's killer. Honestly, doing something like that would be like the most Northumbrian thing ever. And this threat of rival consecrations was so real for the Normans that within a year or two of this event, they'll decree that the Archbishopric of Canterbury serves as the supreme ecclesiastical see in the land, and that York was subordinate to Canterbury. The 12th century historian, Hugh the Chanter, makes it quite clear why William saw this as absolutely necessary. Hugh tells us that the Normans were worried that if the seas remained equal, quote, the Archbishop of York and the treacherous Yorkshireman, end quote, might consecrate a rival and then split the kingdom in two. And this is what made the rebellion in York so different for William. It wasn't Yorkish arms, armor, or even the new castle they had up in Durham. It was the Archbishop and what he might be doing. Now, we have no evidence of what Eldred was actually doing at this point in York, let alone whether he was actually crowning Edgar. We don't even know if he had any intentions of doing so. And based on what we know of him, it's probably much more likely that he was trying to bring the temperature down. But trust wasn't exactly in William's strong suit. And so the Chronicle tells us that William and his army rushed upon York and showed them no quarter. We aren't told how well the defenses held or what kind of resistance the Northerners were able to put up. It's possible that Poitiers wrote something about it, but unfortunately, those pages are lost. But what little we do know gives the impression that the city fell pretty quickly. Orderick tells us that William headed straight for the castle of York, sparing none of the besiegers and freeing Mallet and his men. Then he set his army loose upon the city. And they were just getting started. Next, William and his army advanced upon York Minster. And once there, in the words of the Chronicle, they, quote, made a profanation, end quote. What this means is they desecrated the Minster, likely looting, burning, and murdering their way through it. The damage was so severe that years later, we have records telling us that they were still trying to fix it. The Chronicle doesn't tell us why William did this, but I think when we look at the other accounts of his life, it's pretty clear what he was doing. He was sending a message to the church, and he was telling them they better not challenge him again, ever. And the rage demonstrated here definitely makes me wonder if Archbishop Eldred regretted his role in the elevation of this Norman. I also wonder how Eldred and his fellow church officials fared during this profanation. Because, not to spoil things, but Eldred would be dead in a matter of months. And while the elderly can die of natural causes, those causes can come a lot quicker if they've been roughed up by a bunch of illiterate horse bros and their illiterate horsey monarch. But despite exercising all of his rage upon the minster, William wasn't feeling any better. At least not yet. So, after the church was wrecked and the city was pillaged, he and his men moved on to the surrounding countryside and, quote, 
all other places also he despoiled and trampled upon, end quote. I can see why the Pope liked these guys so much. And while there is clearly a temper tantrum element to this, William and his army would have also been desperately searching the city, as well as the surrounding countryside, for Edgar the Atheling and any of the other rebel leaders. But what William and his men didn't know was that the English leadership had already fled. Because of course they did. In fact, Malmesbury adds that the English nobles apparently had enough time to board ships and sail into the Humber, presumably doing so as York fell, quite possibly while still being able to hear the screams of all the people that they left behind, because both Orderic and the Chronicle agree that large numbers of people, many hundreds, were killed by the knights as they rampaged through York, and Orderic adds that many others were being taken prisoner. And so, as the knights were despoiling the countryside and desecrating at least one church, the English were legging it. And actually, we're told that Edgar was already nice and safe and toasty back in Scotland. And meanwhile, William was keeping his men quite busy. And when the advancing army wasn't out there looting peasants and hunting for the Atheling, they were organizing work crews to build yet another goddamn castle. Because of course they were. They were Normans. And this one was built on Bailey Hill, which meant that there would now be two castles just across the River Ouse from each other. And this new one was placed under the command of Gilbert de Ghent, who was a noble from Flanders. Now, it probably won't surprise you to learn that this army consisted of more than simply Normans. We've talked about this in the past how William drew figures from all over the place, especially if those figures were mercenaries. Though sometimes the mixed nature of William's army gets lost, possibly because the Norman sources tend to give the spotlight to themselves, while the English sources were probably largely unable to differentiate the difference between the Normans and their allies. But a few documents, like Simeon's Historia Dulamensis Ecclesiae, give us some insight into the makeup of William's military occupation. And when paired with Gaimar and the Doomsday Book, a much more complex picture emerges. And in this case, one of the groups we're able to see are the Flemish forces, as well as the Flemish aristocrats that helped enable this conquest. And that, right there, is our f***ing F-word. Flanders. And Flanders deserves some attention here, because actually England and Flanders go way back. You'll recall that Flanders was a player in English politics all the way back to the time of Alfred. His own stepmother was Judith of Flanders, at least briefly. And then for an even briefer and scandalous period, she was also Alfred's sister-in-law. Things in the House of Wessex tended to get a bit wild from time to time. And actually, in the space of just two years, she was twice widowed and returned to the continent, where she met Count Baldwin I. Now, Judith's father, King Charles the Bald, had other plans for her, but Judith wanted Baldwin, and with the help of her brother, the two eloped, and she became Judith of Flanders. She later had a son, who she and Baldwin creatively named Baldwin, and this future Count of Flanders was eventually married to Aelfrith the daughter of Alfred the Great. 
So for those of you keeping score here, that means that Judith arranged a marriage with her former brother-in-law slash former stepson so her son could be married to her former step-granddaughter who was also her former niece-in-law. These nobles run in tight circles. Now, since those early days in the late 9th century, Flanders has been ruled by a total of five Baldwins and two Arnulfs. And all but the first two Baldwins were direct descendants of the House of Wessex. And that second Baldwin was linked through marriage to the House of Wessex. So you're looking at some pretty close ties here. And now, after four Baldwins and two Arnulfs, we get to the latest Baldwin, Baldwin V. And he was the great-great-great-great-grandson of Alfred the Great. And like his predecessors, Baldwin V got very involved in English politics from time to time. Like, very involved. And let's do a lightning recap of the major moments of English history that include Baldwin V. Because this guy was a whole thing. He provided Queen Emma with sanctuary after she managed to irritate pretty much everyone in England. He provided Godwin and Githa sanctuary, along with Swain, Tostic, and Gerth, after Edward the Confessor banished them for refusing to murder innocent civilians. He narrowly escaped attack by King Edward and Emperor Henry III, because, lucky for him, the Godwinsons returned from exile just in the nick of time and kicked Eddie in the junk. Though Swain, being Swain, screwed it all up in the end and killed his cousin, Bjorn Estrasen, who also happened to be the brother of King Swain Estrasen of Denmark. Yes, the brother of the same King of Denmark who's currently eyeing the English throne. But after that colossal f**k-up, Count Baldwin V granted Swain Godwinson sanctuary in Flanders. Baldwin also married off his sister, Judith, to Tostig Godwinson. He accompanied Harold Godwinson on his journey to Rome, where he tried to arrange for the return of Edward the Exile, who was the father of Edgar the Atheling likely so that he could become Edward the Confessor's successor. Basically, Count Baldwin of Flanders tended to want to help out anyone who had a beef with Edward. And so he turned his court into a kind of halfway house for anyone who might have been on the outs with the English king, even though the English king was his own extended cousin. Though, to be fair, Baldwin's support for problems for English kings wasn't restricted to Edward. When Tostic went on the rampage and decided he wanted to kill his brother, King Harold, it was Baldwin who granted him shelter and allowed him to recruit troops in Flanders. And do you know who else was a problem for England? Normandy. And guess who Baldwin married his daughter to? Yep, William. Now, as we've spoken about before, the accounts of William's proposal to Matilda if you could even call it that, are disturbing. But as awful as the stories are, that marriage was granted, and it rocketed William into the big leagues. Matilda was the legitimate daughter of Count Baldwin V of Flanders, the granddaughter of King Robert II of France, the niece of Judith of Flanders, Tostig's wife, the descendant of King Charles the Bald. She was the great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter of King Alfred the Great, and... Thanks to the fact that the House of Wessex traced their lineage like they were writing scripts for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that also means that she was the descendant of Woden, the Allfather. Not sure who Laufey was in this family tree, but the point stands that Matilda was connected, meaning that once William was married to her, 
the rival of the Godwinsons and general menace to damn near everyone, was also connected. And the support of the Norman threat to England didn't stop there. When William was preparing his invasion of England, Malmesbury tells us that Baldwin provided the Duke with counsel, as well as troops. Wace even says that Baldwin engaged in a bit of espionage, giving King Harold information about William's gathering army. Deliberately incorrect information. Furthermore, Baldy V allowed Flemish troops and even Flemish nobles to fight at the Battle of Hastings, including someone you might remember, Baldwin's extended cousin, Count Eustace of Boulogne. The list actually goes on from there, but even this very short summary gets to the point. England had been stalked for decades by a malevolent spirit, and his name was Baldwin V. Because seriously, why would you go out of your way to help Emma, the Godwinsons, and William? Those three had basically nothing in common, other than the fact that, at the time they were receiving help, they were a threat to the English crown. Not to mention the fact that Baldwin was all in on helping out Harold when he was fighting against Edward, but then, once Harold was king, Baldwin was suddenly all about helping Tostig murder Harold. When you look at the things the Count was actually up to here, it can be kind of confusing if you think he was trying to do anything productive or even pro-social. And it only seems to make sense if his goal was to cause chaos and disorder within a foreign nation. And that's a terrifying motivation, which thankfully died out in the medieval era. And it's something that we'll never have to consider coming from any of our modern leaders. But it's because of all of this that here in 1069, one of Baldwin's bros, Gilbert de Ghent, was marching up north with William. And he was close enough to him that he was placed in charge of a castle. And he was actually given much more than just a castle. Gilbert was also granted land that had been owned by Carly, son of Thorbrand. The same Carly whose sons were now on the rampage with the Northumbrian army. And Gilbert wasn't alone. He had brought with him a metric ton of soldiers from Flanders. And what do you call Flemish horse bros? Flembros? Flamingos? Whatever they were, there were a lot of them in England. A look at the records show that following the conquest, nobles from Flanders held over 500 estates. And that's just the upper echelons of the social ladder. Lower down, there were over 2,000 additional tenancies that were also held by lesser figures from Flanders. And the point here is, we're not just dealing with Normans. We're also dealing with Flamingos. And in 1069, there were a bunch of them in York. And so... While William was in the city, probably angrily tucking into a Yorkshire pudding, Gilbert gathered his men, and he decided to tackle this rebel problem head-on. He was going to Durham. But here's the thing about Durham. Do you remember St. Cuthbert of Lindisfarne? The 7th century monk who also became the patron saint of Northumbria? The guy who, during the Viking invasions, went on a post-mortem road trip that lasted for about a couple hundred years. Well, at this point, Cuthbert was in, you guessed it, Durham. Up on and while he's been on the road, he's been keeping himself active. It's how you stay young. And so he's been doing things like miracles and refusing to decay and cranking out relics like a champ. 
and he even gave Alfred the Great a little zombie-style pep talk. But he also apparently had some spies, because Cuthbert caught wind of Gilbert's advance on Durham. And I'm guessing he didn't want to get packed up just yet. So, according to Simeon of Durham, Cuthbert enveloped Gilbert and his men in a thick black fog. And faced with this mystically weather, Gilbert had no choice but to stop his advance. Now, a more prosaic explanation would be that Gilbert had heard about what just happened to Earl Robert de Comine, and he got the willies, and he decided he better stop before the Northumbrians turned him into a nice creme brulee. But if Cuthbert really was responsible for this black mist, it wouldn't be the last time. Legend has it that he also used this trick against the Luftwaffe on April 30th of 1942. The channel may have its divine storms, and Japan its divine winds, but watch out for that fog in Northumbria. Anyway, so Gilbert's attack on Durham was foiled, but Bishop Athelwina of Durham realized how dodgy this was getting, and so he began to pack up Cuthbert's bags. Because when you think about it, maybe St. Aurora Monroe would be safer in Lindisfarne at this point rather than Durham. Which, I've got to say, is a rookie move. If you're about to go into a boss fight, you don't portal your best wizard back to town. Especially when he's good at crowd control. Meanwhile, back in York, William had been there for just over a week. And he decided he'd seen enough. Edgar and his fellow commanders were nowhere to be found. And now there are rumors that Gandalf was up in Durham scaring the snot out of the Flems. But then again, Archbishop Eldred's minster was smoldering, as were large portions of Yorkshire, and now York housed two castles within it, both manned by knights loyal to him. So, not a total success, but ultimately a productive week. And now, his childhood friend, William Fitzosborne, was in the city. So the king knew that Yorkshire would be left in good hands, and he could now return back south. After all, Fitzosborne was such a gifted Norman that the English had pleaded with him to stop his men from looting, pillaging, and raping their way through the countryside, and Fitzosborne did the proper Norman thing. He ignored them, which is exactly what William wanted in a noble, especially in the north. So the king left Yorkshire to the tender mercies of Fitzosborne and told him to join him back in the south once his work was done. And with that settled, the bastard returned to Winchester. Because Easter was coming, and he didn't want to miss the festivities. After all, he was God's favorite. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to join us on social media, please come over to Reddit. It's quite nice there, and you can find a link to that community in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 